Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This time around, we've got another excellent installment from the Modern Bar Cart LA Road Trip featuring a tour and tasting with Brian Davis of Lost Spirits Distillery. This is a dynamic and interactive episode that gives you a sneak peek into one of the most bizarre and wonderful distillery tours in the world, and we're super stoked to share it with you. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, I think you should prepare for the journey ahead by taking a moment to make yourself a drink. This episode, we're going to be drinking some rum, so we thought it might be fun to feature one of the most beloved rum drinks of all time, Planter's Punch. There are a lot of different hypotheses about where this cocktail comes from, and almost as many variations on the recipe, so don't worry about swapping out ingredients if you need to. It's all but encouraged. To make Planter's Punch, you'll need one and a half to two ounces of dark rum. Nice Jamaican style is really nice here. A half ounce of lime juice, one ounce of pineapple juice, a half ounce of orange juice, and just a quarter ounce of simple syrup, just to give it a little bit more sweetness. And combine all those ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give it a good vigorous shake, then strain everything into a rocks glass over some more ice. For a garnish, throw in a pineapple wedge, a citrus wheel, or some mint if you've got a sprig hanging around. This is a mellow concoction that's just perfect for warm or cold weather sipping, and it's also super easy to batch for large gatherings where you break out the old punch bowl. So, now that you've got a drink to help you through the journey we're about to embark upon, let me tell you a little bit about the man who will be our guide. Brian Davis is a veteran of the spirits industry. Along with his partner, Joanne, he created a successful absinthe brand and then moved to Monterey County, California in 2010 to create Lost Spirits Distillery. They then moved their growing operation to Los Angeles in 2016. Brian's a weird dude, and I don't think he'd mind me saying that because a lot of his success is due to his really non-conventional approach to pretty much everything he does. In this roving interview, he takes me on a Wonka-esque tour of his distillery, which is part amusement ride, part history lesson, and part laboratory. The whole place has one foot stuck in the past and the other probing restlessly for a foothold in the future. The other thing I like about Brian is that he's a trickster, constantly disappearing around corners, intentionally baffling guests' sense of direction, pretending that extraordinary things are normal. And then, just when you think you've caught on and beat him to his own punchline, he'll change the joke. He's also the kind of guy who will go into exhaustive scientific detail on the who, what, where, and when of something whether that thing is fermentation, barrel aging, or the microbial underpinning of short-chain fatty acid esters. But when it comes to the why or the how of something, 
there always seems to be some convention that's being bucked, or some elaborate prank being played on Mother Nature, or international spirits conglomerates, or pretty much anyone else who wanders into the distillery. This is part one of a two-part episode, so instead of rattling off all the subjects we talk about, like I usually do here, I'll step aside so that you can very simply enjoy this strange trip through the boozy funhouse that is Lost Spirits Distillery. Hey guys, this is Eric coming to you from beautiful, rainy Los Angeles. We got a, a rare rainy day here. Um, in the car on the way to Lost Spirits, which is a really innovative distillery here in LA. It's run by a, a fella named Brian Davis. And uh, a couple, couple things about this place that we kind of have to set our expectations for are one, they have a different approach to spirits than a lot of the more established folks in the industry have. Uh, so very interested in learning all about that and, and hearing Brian talk about uh, how they're kind of pushing the envelope. And the space itself is, is sort of the other thing that I'm a little bit curious about here because I've watched a couple of videos online and it seems like it's just uh, Wonka-esque almost. So uh, we're going to hopefully see in just a few minutes here what Lost Spirits looks like. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try and do a little bit different type of storytelling here in this, uh, in this road tripping episode. Stay tuned. After the car dropped me off at a warehouse in Skid Row with a mural of the Queen of Hearts painted around the door, I met Brian and we kicked off our tour. The first thing he had me do was sign an elaborate waiver, which isn't something you usually do when you go to a distillery. I guess that was the first sign that things were about to get weird. And then Tessa showed up. Okay, Tessa, can you take us on a tour, please? Absolutely. You know how much I love giving these little tours. It is as though you made me just for this one task. Tessa is the automated distiller and tour guide at Lost Spirits, a computer program Brian created to help make the booze and to lead guests through the elaborate world he created inside his connected series of East LA warehouses. As she spoke, a set of red velvet curtains parted, revealing an ornate nautical room where I got to taste the first spirit of the tour. So, uh, so what you're drinking is our Navy rum. Now, fair warning, it's 61% alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably should have given you that warning before you started drinking it, but it, it's, a, it's actually a safety regulation, which is why we keep it that strong. Um, in the British Royal Navy, uh, you would have never taken rum on board a boat that was less than 57.5% alcohol. And that was because if you got into a fight, you didn't want to end up getting your gunpowder soaked and not being able to light or uh, to ignite the gunpowder. Uh, essentially, you'd have um, more or less about a thousand sailors on board any one of the hundred gunships of the line. And so with a thousand sailors on board, they would get paid part of their compensation in rum. And so they received eight ounces a day uh, of booze every morning in order to help, you know, sort of keep them in good spirits. And the, uh, because of that, you know, what most people don't realize is you got a thousand sailors on a ship, you're sending them to battle somewhere that takes three months to sail to. You might be in combat for two months, then you might have three months coming back home. So it'd be perfectly normal to have eight months worth of rum 
for a thousand sailors at eight ounces a day on board the ship. Which would mean you literally have more rum on board the boat than you would any single other item. And so if you got into a gunfight and a random cannonball or a musket ball hit something, it was probably going to hit a barrel of rum. And if you splattered rum all over the gunpowder and it wasn't flammable, then you wouldn't be able to ignite the gunpowder to fire back and you'd be a sitting duck. Seems perfectly logical for for having strong rum. Exactly. Yeah. So for safety regulations, you would only allow it to come on board flammable. Um, now, the, uh, the sailors actually knew this, so they would test the proof every day. Uh, and so whenever they would get the booze uh, in the morning, they would send a guy down to go get gunpowder and they'd mix it up with the rum and then they'd hold a magnifying glass over it to see if it would light. If the gunpowder burned, then the rum had been proofed. If the gunpowder exploded, it was overproof. If it wouldn't ignite, it was underproof. And then they would typically, you know, punish the officers mercilessly. Right. Uh, but yeah, so a bit of brief history of British Royal Navy rum tradition. Essentially, when we made this, uh, we started with the idea of making a heavy pot still Guyanese rum, which was the base of the, uh, or Guyanese style uh, rum, which was the base of, um, of British Royal Navy rum. And then sort of like after meticulously studying all the production processes, we wanted to throw our own spin on it. And so we went to work watching all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and sort of asking the question of what do you think the rum from the movie would taste like if you could reach out and take the bottle from Jack Sparrow and drink it. And that ultimately got us to the flavor profile of, you know, boat tar, gunpowder, uh, heavy dose of rancio, um, uh, you know, mixed with some of the classic Demerara flavor profiles like the salted prune and uh, little bits of tropi dried tropical fruits in there. Yeah, that's a really nice explanation of this, and it's it's funny too because you get the molasses straight away, mm -hmm. uh, so it's definitely not an agricole, but it's it's also not super funky like a Smith and Cross or something right. like that. It's got a bit more of that dried fruit sophistication mm -hmm. uh, to it that I think is really really nice, and I think uh, I'm not super familiar with Guyanese rums, but this is of the few that I've tasted. This kind of brings me back to those experiences. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun it's a fun bottle of booze. Uh, and then as far as the tour goes, we thought, you know, it'd be really cool if you could drink the products in their native habitats. And so we created sort of like a nautical theme tasting area for the uh, for the Navy Rum. Yeah. And that gets us to the room with the waves and, you know, uh, the music. Yeah, and we have this uh, beautiful sort of uh, almost like old-timey cartography globe that opens up uh, onto a chandelier full of uh, Glencairn glasses, uh, which is a really nice touch. And we've got, this almost looks like the, the chambers, the inner chambers of a probably what would be a very large vessel. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, beautiful. And uh, sconces and uh, rather a chandelier on the ceiling with some beautiful wave art as well. After Brian regaled me with other tales of rum and the British Navy, including the pickling of Horatio Nelson, it was time to see where the rum was made. But not before we were caught in a freak storm, the kind designed to scuttle an entire fleet. <laughs> Lights are flickering ominously. The trip to the rum distillery required a separate voyage on an actual boat floating on the reservoir of water that served several functions in the distillery. An interesting marriage of form, function, and fancy. So, welcome aboard. <laughs> I feel like we're uh, 
on a on a the river sticks right now and you just uh, <laughs> pushed us off. <laughs> All right, Tessa, you should take us down to the distillery, please. When we arrived at the Tropical Feeling Distillery, I learned exactly how much Brian and his team had done to automate the rum making process. It can happen almost completely without the help of human hands. They're just waiting on drone technology to catch up with their yeast scooping needs. Uh, so this is our molasses and water mixing tank. So basically, uh, whenever we want to make a new batch, we take out our phones, tell the computer we want to make a new batch of booze, open the valve on there. She pumps in molasses and then pumps in hot water from underneath. Uh, the two amalgamate enough that it can mi then mix it. And then she pumps it through an inline mixing system. Um, at that point, the product does become a little bit handmade. You know, once she's filled up one of the fermentation tanks after mixing up the, the uh, solution, She'll send us a text message and let us know that we need to add yeast to tank two or tank three or tank four. And we just still have to do that completely by hand. It's a, it's grueling. Uh, we have to walk all the way to the refrigerator. Get a package. Open it. Yeah. Get a package. Open yeah. that. Mm. Walk all the way back to the fermentation tank and then, and then pour it in. And, uh, and so we're trying to solve that problem. But the biggest issue we've run into is that the, uh, the scooping system that we built on the bottom of the drones it blocks them from landing on the charger correctly. Yeah, and so we're trying to fix that strategy uh, and eventually get it to work. There, but we're ultimately going to have to engineer a new drone charging system. So until then, we do still make part of the product completely by hand. Yeah. This is Elon Muskian of you to uh, automate <laughs> things to this degree. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It causes its fair share of problems on occasion. Yeah. The automation system runs haywire. But uh, we spent so many years lugging every bucket and every bag over our shoulders that when we built this place, we were like, okay, we're so automating this. Yeah. Did, uh, does, uh, does Tessa ever say, I'm sorry, Brian, I can't do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it, it's one of the things she sometimes says when you try to flush the toilet. Oh. Uh, at any rate. <laughs> After a little bit of toilet humor and some shameless movie references, we turned our attention to the custom stills. And then at that point, we pump it over into the stills to distill it, which you can see over here. Wow, they're beautiful stills. No, oh, thanks. I built them. Uh, so essentially, uh, once we put the booze in here, then Tessa kicks on. She sends the uh, pressurized steam through the steam lines here, coils it around, causes the wine to boil. Because the water has a lower boiling point than the alcohol, the steam yeah. rising off is disproportionately high in alcohol. That goes up through the dragon heads and then uh, through the sculptures of flames and down the line arm and then into the... Uh, what's called a condenser up here. Uh, and then inside the condenser are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet of coiled up copper pipes. And inside those pipes is the river water you sailed in on, which is actually floating through the or flowing through the pipes, keeping them cold. When the boiling steam hits the exterior of those pipes, it turns back into liquid, exchanges the heat with the river, which keeps it balmy and tropical in here. And then that causes the, uh, the alcohol steam and water steam, or the, the booze steam, if you will, to condense and then pour through those pointless sweeping copper pipes and then down through the copper flowers inside the spirit safe under the sphinxes and then into the holding tanks behind. This is a fascinating still setup. One, because of the adornments that you've added, you know, the, the, the dragons literally breathing the steam toward the condenser. And then we have this, uh, like a, almost like a sight glass over here. And then the river, can you talk a little bit more about that? You've almost created a, like an environment here. Well, we, so the biggest problem we ran into was that we wanted to make rum. And, you know, L.A. has a very hot and dry climate, which isn't typically where you make rum. So we thought, well, okay, what if we create a more environmentally friendly cooling system and we use a heat sink? And then we thought, well, that'll make the entire space into a tropical jungle. So we went with it. 
Yeah. Uh, the uh, the only problem was that you had to get people through it, and you can't really hand the customers a machete each time. Uh, and so we decided to then you know basically sail them down the boat in order to get them to the distillery. Fantastic! I love it. I love it. <laughs> Takes a certain sense of humor. <laughs> that pretty much concludes the conventional normal part of the distillery tour. From here, it gets a little on the weird side. As if things weren't already weird enough. Next, we walked into an extremely bright room with a bunch of clinking machines that look like they're straight out of a Star Trek movie. This is probably the most interesting room in the distillery. Uh, it's where we actually age the booze. It's a technology I invented in 2014 and then patented in 2015. Uh, we license it out all over the world, which is actually our core business. It's a much, much larger operations than us. Uh, and then we have a small setup in here that we use for our own fun, wacky distillery. Uh, but basically, it works by heating the booze up inside these stainless steel drums with wood uh, to a temperature where we can extract a catalyst from the wood. And then we use that catalyst downstream to trigger the chemical reaction of sterification, which drives barrel aging. And then after that, we pump the, the, uh, the spirit over here into this glass tube. Uh, which is uh, well, uh, is about to be filled, I think. Uh, we had to interrupt operations for a minute for, the, yeah. for your tour. Of course. Uh, but so once that's full of the booze, the light travels through the glass, hits the surface of the wood, and then it triggers a reaction called photodegradation, which is what makes your deck fall apart in the sun. Uh -huh. um, the super high-intensity light breaks the wood apart at the molecular level. All the degradation products get trapped inside the booze. And then after that, we pump it back over here and use the high heat and the catalyst to chemically bind all 350 or so molecules together in the right order. When we're done, we can match the chemical signature of roughly 15 to 20 years in a barrel, except the entire process takes me six days and I rest on the seventh. Quick question on the wood that's being used. Are you using something like staves? Yeah, it's a, it's a chopped up barrel stave. Yeah. Uh, so it's a new American oak. Um, we get them from a favorite cooperage in France which is sort of ironic because the wood comes from Missouri and then they make it into boards in France and then they mold them there and they have the right mold in their yard and so it triggers more degradation of the polymer structures and the, to get the flavor profile we want. Okay. Uh, and then they scrape off all the mold, cook them, and then make a barrel out of it. And then we char the wood after we get it here. France is a surprisingly moldy place. It's kind of the secret sauce to a lot of the food. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> and the barrels, actually. Yeah. Nobody ever likes to talk about the molding the wood part, but it's actually done on all the barrel wood before they make them into barrels. Okay, Yeah, uh, Enzymes produced by the mold pre-break some of the polymer structures in the wood apart. After I learned all about accelerated barrel aging, which is what Brian and Lost Spirits are really known for, I got to sample another unique rum and talk about one of my favorite topics, dunder. For more info on that funky subject, check out our rum episode with Ben Lyon and Jamie Winden of Lyon Distilling. Uh, so this one's a Jamaican Highester rum. Uh, we actually import the raw spirit from Jamaica because it requires a muck pit, uh, which I don't know if you know that story. The, the old dunder pit. Right. Yep. Uh, so without the muck pit or uh, full of dunder, you can't actually produce that style of rum. And you can't obviously do that in the United States. There's pretty much not a health inspector alive that would go for it. So we ultimately import the spirit from Jamaica and then we mature it here. Right. Can you talk a little bit about esters? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so, I mean, if you want, I can just sort of explain the Jamaican rum in three seconds. Yeah, why don't we do that? It's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, so basically, the way you make these is you start by digging a 10 foot by 10 foot hole in the ground, and then you take a, a rotten something. Uh, there are texts from the 1850s that say goat heads, which makes for a great story. Yeah. Um, the, the Jamaicans, con contemporary Jamaicans today will tell you it was a rotting jackfruit. Uh, they're probably right, uh, but either way, it makes a lot more sense because goat cheeks are awesome. But either way, like like some rotten thing went into the pit, and then you top it up with the waste from the still, 
And what they essentially built were anaerobic digesters, though where bacteria would brew inside the waste and then it would chew up all the protein structures and the water would percolate back into the groundwater, which when you really think about it, it was actually quite forward looking for 250 years ago. Because mm -hmm. essentially what they were doing was processing their waste uh, at a time where everybody else just threw it in a river. Uh, but it also was fermenting quite grossly. And, and so it would ferment to create this sort of like really horrific repulsive smell. Um, they're, they're sort of like rotten pits of death. Yeah. And uh, uh, on that topic, right, so what's happening is that bacteria and their strategy for world domination have mastered the art of having babies really, really fast. That's basically their battle plan, right? There's two of us that started this tour. Uh, by now, there'd be eight of us. There'd be 16 by the time we got to the lab, 32 by the time you got in the carousel, 64 by the time you get to Whiskey Island, 128 by the time you get to the aviary, uh, and 256 of you trying, or us trying to get back in a car. Yeah. Right? You'd never <laughs> fit. And, and so basically what they're doing by breeding that fast is encircling their competitors, eating all the food around them, and then starving them to death. Uh, which is essentially their battle plan. Now, of course, the catch to that is that you could starve yourselves to death just as easily. So to prevent that from happening, bacteria produce chemicals called short-chain fatty acids that they use to talk to each other. Those chemicals allow them to communicate. Once they build up a high enough concentration of them, they shut down their reproductive cycles and then just eat the food. Okay, now, those chemicals are what humans evolved to smell and not like, or like depending on which bacteria you're smelling. So you smell a piece of cheese, your brain picks out the lactic acid, gives you a feedback report from a database you were born with, and goes, yes, this is acceptable, grate this and put it on a taco. Right. Uh, right. Or you smell a bowl of kimchi and your brain goes, ah, this is good too. Yeah. That's a propionibacterium and also lactobacillus. Great. Go ahead and buy a food truck and put this on a taco. Yes. Uh, but yeah. So, uh, and then you smell something rotten and horrible like a compost pit and your brain's like, no, <laughs> put this nowhere near your food. That's clostridium. They'll kill you. And so that's basically humans in a nutshell. Uh, and then from there you get to yeast, which their strategy for world domination is to out-evolve their competitors. And so they're constantly evolving solutions to everything that gets thrown at them because they're actually the world's fastest evolving organism, uh, which is something that most people don't realize because we take them for granted because they make things like beer and wine and are such a part of our daily lives, bread. Right, right. right. But in reality, they're actually quite special. Uh, and we use them in laboratories to study the evolutionary forces on an organism because they respond so much faster than everything else does. Got it, got it. And this isn't just like your standard bread yeast that's in a little sure. packet at the supermarket. Yeah. yeah, it is. Oh, really? Yeah. Your standard bread yeast in the little supermarket packet is the world's fastest evolving organism. Really? And, and it makes sense. It became the bread yeast to make bread for you to get you to grow more of it. Right. It's devious. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're sneaky little guys. Um, but so over the course of millions of years of being the world's fastest evolver, they've evolved a lot of really, really cool superpowers. One of those is that they can speak bacterial languages. And so when you put yeast and bacteria in close proximity, the first thing the yeast do is make a whole bunch of those short-chain fatty acids to inform the bacteria that the bacteria have already won the war. It's time for them to stop breeding, and then the yeast can quietly encircle them and starve them to death without the bacteria ever realizing they lost. Now, while they do that, they build up even more of those chemicals in the soup, which would make humans very unhappy, right? Because you'd get a bottle of wine that would taste like compost at the end. Right. And so to keep you happy, they make an enzyme which then converts the short-chain fatty acids to short-chain fatty acid esters by chemically binding an alcohol molecule with a weak acid to form the corresponding short-chain fatty acid ester. 
In nature, short-chain fatty acid esters are the things that make fruit taste like fruit. It's so that when you, basically the way I like to summarize it on the tour is, every time you watch someone swirl a glass of wine, and sniff the wine in the glass and talk about the black currants and raspberries on the opening, uh, you know, followed by a citrus backbone with a hint of red currants sure. in the finish. What they're actually describing are the chemicals made by the yeast to spoof the human into thinking they're smelling fruit while covering up the conversation they had with the bacteria when they spoofed the bacteria into committing suicide. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. All you <laughs> didn't know you could know about yeast. <laughs> From there, Brian took me through their lab space, which houses a gas chromatograph and mass spectrometer, which is how they study and validate the chemical compositions of their boozy experiments. A miniature still for micro batches of weird stuff, a futuristic pie refrigerator for pie, and all sorts of other interesting projects, including bacterially fermented pimento leaves that created an odor so intense you could smell it through a sealed glass jar. At that point, my glass was dry again, and it was time to head off to a place with an enticing name, Whiskey Island. All right. Ah, grandma's <laughs> cupboard. All right, so if you want to get to Whiskey Island, you're going to need two things. One is a good seaworthy vessel, and the other is some booze to keep you warm for the Cheers. long and windy journey. Yes. Uh, that's actually a California brandy uh, that we make. Uh, in partnership with one of the consulting clients. It was a project we were developing for them. They weren't really into it. They felt it was too much. We really liked it. So uh, we went ahead and bought some and put it on the tour. Brandy in hand, we boarded a floating carousel built on the very same aquifer that sailed us to the rum distillery. With a command from Brian, Tessa filled a set of actual sails with wind and the vessel began to spin faster and faster. The room darkened and stars wheeled overhead, simulating a journey across the sea in the span of only a few minutes. For somebody who uh, basically took the time it takes to age a spirit and slashed it to a, a micro fraction of what it used to be, you do interesting things with time on your tours. <laughs> I have an obsession with time, uh, possibly in a healthy relationship. And with that, we arrived at Whiskey Island. Looks like we just entered a dining room in the middle of the jungle somewhere. <laughs> the fun part for people is trying to figure out how they got here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of spend the first couple minutes in here scratching their head and pondering. So uh, there's our abomination whiskey. So the uh, it's the last spirit on the tour. Okay. Um, basically, I uh, wanted to create a whiskey inspired by the island of Dr. Moreau. A few quick footnotes here. The Island of Dr. Moreau is an 1896 novel by H.G. Wells about a mad scientist who creates bizarre human-animal hybrids on his tropical island. Also, Isla is a salty, intense style of Scotch whiskey, and Sauternes, Riesling, and Semillon are types of sweet winemaking grapes. Um, so we went to, uh, to Isla. We picked up an 18-month-old there and then brought it back to the United States and did a bunch of immoral things to it in the laboratory. An 18 month or an 18 year? 18 month. For those of you who are concerned that Brian just kidnapped a baby, he's merely referring to the age of the whiskey here, not an actual child. Okay. It's a, it's a new American oak with the tannin structure strip out, stripped out of it in the laboratory. Um, using late harvest Riesling wine is the medium for pulling the tannin out. So it simulates the effect of a used late harvest Riesling wine barrel, which of course doesn't exist because late harvest Riesling isn't aged in barrels. So it basically allows you to create the effect of a barrel that doesn't exist to make a whiskey some of our you'd morally shouldn't. Late harvest Riesling. 
Uh, well, it makes sense, right? Because so, if you think of um, uh, the type of wine you or the type of barrels you would use to age whiskey in, right? Uh, so you have a bourbon barrel if you really want the whiskey to do all the talking and you don't want the wood to do a lot of talking. Uh, you have a sherry barrel if you want the wood to do a lot of talking, right? And then you've got exotics like a Sauternes barrel uh, if you want like a sweet peat. But the thing about a Sauternes barrel is, well, one, they already exist. And two, it's not so easy to get your hands on that wood either, uh, just because you're basically dealing with a handful of wineries and when they have wood available. We used to use um, a late harvest uh, Simeon, which is the California term for a Sauternes. Right. Uh, and I would drive all over California uh, to get the barrels to do it. This is the original distillery in Monterey County. Was, uh, every October they would empty them. Uh, and so like basically the barrels were good for two years. So every other October, uh, the wineries would have like however many barrels of essentially a Sauternes they made, which is like four, yeah. six, eight. Yeah. There's a total of 72 in, the, in California at any given time. And I would try to get all 72, which I never succeeded at. But I'd basically run around for the entire month of October in a pickup truck collecting late harvest Simeon barrels. And, uh, and so long story short, we thought, well, okay, what would be a comparable wine that would produce a similar type of flavor profile? And late harvest Riesling is sort of, you know, it's familial to a, to a, a Sauternes. So we thought, okay, that would probably work. And then it was like, now can we figure out a way to, to pull the stuff out of the wood that the wine would pull out of the wood while leaving everything behind that the wine would leave behind right. to then basically simulate the effect of a used barrel. So you kind of like seeded the wood with a Spatlisé or an Auschlisé. Right. And that, like... It's almost like you you backed into the the effect, right? Mm -hmm. Because you you didn't do it the way that it would be done if Riesling was aged in barrels. You did it to simulate that you the best way that you can on right. the, sort of on the it was front end. Okay, how do we get the stuff out that the wine would pull? Yeah. Now and leave everything else behind. Okay. Now dump it in the wine and, and soak the wine into it. Right. Um, or when possible, use the wine as the actual stripping medium. How hard do you have to iterate on this stuff and how much time does it take to create a product like this? You know, it's so hard to say. They're all different. Um, I mean, I usually say a year. It normally takes a year to do anything. Um, there are exceptions to that. There are things that just, bang, it works. Uh, you know, the bacterially fermented pimento leaves, that's the first time we ever tried that. Just, holy crap, <laughs> you know? Um, so different things work. Uh, some Once in a while you get lucky, it works right out of the gate. Once in a while you get something like I've been trying to make a sliv of it. Uh, Damson Plum. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so I started on that project a year ago, and I am nowhere near having anything I want to sell. Uh, so sometimes they take longer. Sometimes they go much faster. With the final spirit of the journey behind us, Brian and Tessa had one last trick to show us. A gift shop experience led by a gaggle of animatronic birds. A sufficiently bizarre ending to a distillery tour that can only be described as both strange and wonderful. Come on, birds. It is time to start the Enchanted Gift Shop show. Come on, birds. Wake up. Wake up. Come on, birds. Time to show them why we have the best gift shop in the jungle. Unsurprisingly, Brian and his team are currently working on new ways to educate and delight their visitors. Unfortunately, I can neither confirm nor deny that the next iteration may involve holograms and virtual reality headsets. Somehow, I get the sense that that waiver I signed might get just a little longer. You can learn more about Lost Spirits Distillery and schedule a tour by visiting lostspirits.net, and you can find out all about Brian and his work online, including a TED Talk he gave, which we'll link to in the show notes. 
Be sure to tune in next week for part two of this episode, where we talk to Brian about the impact his accelerated approach to barrel aging is having on the international spirits community. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with more editing and production assistance than usual by Samantha Reed, a world-class distillery tour by Brian Davis and his sidekick Tessa, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.